The Microsoft Azure Marketplace is the premier destination for developers' software needs, certified and optimized to run on Azure. Here Technologies provides an enterprise-grade SLA-backed location suite consisting of maps and location data for all Azure apps. You can access them via serverless functions, deployable solution for web app backends, and real-time data streams, now accessible within the Azure Marketplace. Simply go to t.her.is slash hereazure to get started. That's t.her.is slash hereazure. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Hey, Richard, you know what? What? I hate my f***ing phone. <laughs> you can't say that. I can't say what? F***ing phone. Yes, I can, because I have the power of the bleep. Okay. F***ing, 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 f***ing sucking phone. There, there goes all the guys listening in the car with their kids. Right. You know why I hate my f***ing phone? Roll the crazy music for Better No Framework, and I'll tell you a dumb story. All right, dude, tell me your story. So at first, I thought the story of dumb was me that was dumb. And, you know, there's a little part of my being dumb in this story. It's always a safe bet, right? But, you know, that, you, that, that you've screwed up yourself. Yeah. But and I and I'll tell you how embarrassed I was when I found the uh, solution to said dumbness. But mm -hmm. also the phone didn't help me at all. And so okay. here's the story: I'm out and about, I'm shopping or something, I'm in line, and my phone doesn't work. There's no service, and uh, I don't know what's going on. I I turn off Wi-Fi just in case I've connected to some Wi-Fi that I right. shouldn't. Still nothing. And, you know, browsers don't work. Facebook doesn't work. I have phone and I have messages. So I know, like, I don't have a problem there. And I just kind of put it off. Like, oh, yeah, I got to go to the store, and the AT&T store, and let somebody figure it out for me. I just put it off and put it off. Because Wi-Fi is pretty much everywhere in my life, right? Yeah. You're just living on Wi-Fi. Yeah. So it's not, it's not a huge priority. But then it becomes really annoying. And I'm like, you know what? Damn it. I'm, I got a few minutes. I'm just going to stop into the AT&T store. Guy pulls up the phone. He goes, oh, here's your problem. Your mobile data button is off. Nice. There's a mobile data button sure. that you can turn on and off. Now, mm -hmm. that so that's where I felt really dumb because, oh, I right. must have fat fingered it or something. But the thing that makes me really mad, Richard, is that... When it was off and I deliberately went to a website, it just said offline. Right. It didn't say your mobile data is off. Yeah. There, there wasn't anything. Hey, I think you're trying to reach a website and your mobile data is turned off. Would you like it to turn on? Would you yeah. like me to never ask you again? You know, there are so many ways that it could have helped me avoid the dumbness. Yeah. But uh, so I'm pointing the dumb finger at uh, my Galaxy s8 plus and there you go that's it that's that's my better know framework for today is a, a confession of dumbness and um conspiracy of dumbness yeah I, I don't know if you need to know learn or love that at all no you can just be amused <laughs> i suppose 
It's just a little rage. Just a little f***ing rage. <laughs> All right. Who's talking to us today? Grabbed a comment off of show 1332, the one we did with Paul Stovall back in August of 2016, talking about multi-tenant applications, mm-hmm. right? This whole idea of how do you support multiple customers off of a common code based up in the cloud, right? Yes. All this cloud, good old cloud native stuff. Yeah, and yeah. It clearly, for a three-year-old show, it, it, we had a lot of comments on it. It resonated with a lot of folks. This yeah. comment comes from Wayne Hiller. He says, this was an interesting topic, dear to my heart. I've spent many years working on these exact problems. I've built a software package for connecting a thousand recycled parts dealers using MVC on SQL Server. Part of the package includes a live messaging system where a single message can be viewed by many dealers or just one in a direct mode. And some of the data is shared and much of it is not. I started out using a single database for each dealer, which quickly became a nightmare to maintain. Admittedly, that show was three years ago, but one of the big themes when we were talking about multi-tenancy was is you have an instinct to build one database per customer, right. and it is wrong. Yeah. Don't do it. Don't do that. In a rewrite a few years ago, I decided to do a combination approach. My databases are designed to house many dealers' data in a single database. The system can also be installed on-site with one dealer or more. Hmm. Replication sends shared data between each installed database. There are trade-offs, as always. Maintenance is now much easier, but restoring backup data is harder. Yeah, you spread the data across multiple different places. Getting to a common state is tricky. Uh, Performance is far better with only a few SQL Server databases, and caching is much more efficient. Yeah. As for the code, I found plugins work pretty well for customizing things per customer. Of course, the databases can be an issue for that as well. And all in all, there's probably no easy answer. And the usual and correct answer is, it depends. <laughs> Always. <laughs> yeah, it's very circumstantial and, and non-trivial. But it's great to sort of bang through these different uh idea spaces and ways and approaches to actually dealing with this and yeah. you know starting with this sort of admission that yeah one database per customer not not going to work out for you you're going to be sad yeah so wayne thank you so much for your comment a copy of music to code by is on its way to you and if you'd like a copy of music to code by write a comment on the website at dotnetrocks.com or on the social medias we publish every show to facebook and if you comment there and i read it on the show we'll send you a copy of music to code by and definitely follow us on twitter i'm at carl franklin he's at rich campbell send us a tweet and if it doesn't go out, check your mobile data button. <laughs> Ask me how I know. Oh, I already told you how I know. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I know how you know. You know the one thing about phones that people don't realize is they have so many antennas in them that the chances that none of your antennas are broken is almost zero. <laughs> That's probably right. There's a half a dozen antennas. They're tightly interwoven. They're fragile as all get out. Yeah. You drop your phone and you didn't. it's not smashed or anything. But sometime later, you realize this doesn't work right. right? Yeah. And it's often it's like one of your antennas is now broken. Yeah. I had a nephew like that. He just didn't work right after we <laughs> dropped, dropped him. him a couple of times and he just didn't work right after that. Yeah, okay, exactly. Nice. exactly. I like that a lot. Okay. Hey, let's bring on Tom. Tom Kirkova works for Codit as an Azure architect, is a member of the AZUG crew, A-Z-U-G, and has been a Microsoft Azure MVP and Azure advisor since 2014. You can see Tom around on GitHub maintaining Prometer and Azure deprecation or contributing to projects like Keda, K-E-D-A, and Arcus. He turns coffee into scalable and secure cloud systems and writes about his adventures on blog.tomkirkova.be. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you very much for having me again. Yeah. How about that comment from three years ago? It was an interesting approach to solving a problem. Yeah, I totally agree. Certainly with the part, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> sure. 
<laughs> I think it always depends on, on the application that you're building and, and what the needs are. Um, the comment on, on one database per customer is an interesting example um, because some systems require that you have isolated data per customer because they need to have access to their data. And if you're sharing, if you're sharing a database, then uh, it becomes more tricky. Right. Now, of course, SQL has tools like this, so you could use a role-level security and only give them access to that. But uh, yeah, again, it depends how far do you want to go. Yes, yeah, and that sounds very tricky to to take partially shared databases and restrict a user to only the pieces they want. Although I would argue the real issue is giving, if you're trying to run a SaaS product for someone, you're giving direct access to the database, you've got problems. Like that seems yep. like a mistake. I would much rather, rather give them an API level view than give them direct access to tables. Yep, exactly. So we haven't talked about multi-tenancy in a couple of years. I hope things have evolved. Has it gotten easier or harder? Um, that's a good question. I think in terms of um, providers like Azure who help you build better systems, it certainly has evolved, but I mm -hmm. think we still suffer with the same challenges. Um, everybody has its own opinion how to do things. Do we share databases? Do we not share databases? Um, we want to give them access to the data. We don't want to give them access. So I think uh, it helped to a certain degree, but it's still not easy to do. Yeah, I, I appreciate the idea. It's never going to be easy, but maybe there's some no. tools that make our life a little simpler. Exactly. Um, and now that we're talking about data, I think that's most one of the most hardest things um, when you're building one of those multi-tenant um, applications. Um, because when you say multi-tenant, People always think about sharding. So uh, basically spreading your data across one or more databases. And uh, already there, there are a couple of sharding patterns, which you need to choose up front how you will distribute your data. But also, if you're going to distribute it, you need a unique identifier. But what will that unique identifier be? And Cosmos is a good example of that. If you create a new collection, you always have to define what the distribution key will be. So you need to kind of think ahead how you will want to scale the data. And I personally still find that one of the, the hardest parts and also requires a deep um, understanding of the domain that you're working with. So, I mean, we love Cosmos DB, but th that when we're talking about sharding, it's really about geo distribution that you, you're going multi-tenant, so you've got customers spread around the world? <laughs> yes and no. So the reason why sharding is interesting is that uh, we don't want to have one database where all the data is stored and because one database is a single point of failure right. it's not going to scale well because the the only approach where you can scale is scale that database up and at some point there will not be a bigger database as the people who are using sap <laughs> um but 
another approach is to scale out. So if we use a lot of smaller databases and we are reaching a tipping point, we can just add a couple of more shards, do a rebalance of the shards, and we have more uh, computers to distribute them across. So it can be, indeed be for uh, geo distribution, but it can also be just for in one geo uh, to have less points of failure. Right. So in the case of our, our, our listener there, Wayne, he's got a thousand uh, used parts dealers. To say they're all in at one city, you'd, you could still see a case for using Cosmos DB just to have multiple endpoints in the same geography. Yep. That's really interesting. Yeah, I haven't thought about Cosmos DB that way. But of course, um, Cosmos is not the the only data store. I think right. SQL is still a valid option for this. Um, because what Azure we, SQL specifically or just, you know, RDBS in general? Um, I'm only using Azure SQL at the moment. But the, the beauty is that typically you pay for one database and every database has a specific SKU assigned. So that means that if you have 100 databases, you pay 100 times the pricing tier that you're using, even if you're only using 5%. In Azure, you have something cool, which is called Azure SQL Elastic Pools. And basically, it allows you to create uh, a compute pool for SQL databases where you say, okay, I want to provision 1,000 units, um, which is now called vCPUs, I think. And in that pool, I'll add all my databases. So if I have 100 or 200 databases, it doesn't matter. I'm only paying for what's inside the pool. So instead of underutilizing our databases, we just create a shared pool and every database uh, takes what he needs from that pool. So you basically have a, a better way of governing the resources across all your databases. So you you could still have a database per customer, and we can debate how smart or dumb that is, but you're not paying for the database per customer. You're paying by the pool and how really it's more utilization. Exactly. However, there's also a tricky part because if you have a, a very busy tenant because you've just signed a deal with a very big company like, let's say, Microsoft, which has a lot of employees, you might bring down the other ones inside. Right. So you need to keep in mind that this is a certain risk. Now, the good part is that elastic pools also allow you to define a maximum on a, per, a maximum amount of compute that one specific database can use. So let's say we have 100 units. You could say that every database can only use five units of them. And if they want right. to need, if they want to use more, basically they get throttled. Okay, and then, but at the same time, you are then notified by that, and you've got this big new customer, and you expand the pool so that they have enough database resources to keep up their performance. But the the big customer is going to struggle with the performance, not everybody else. Yes, exactly. That's pretty cool. I like that. Mm -hmm. It's it, it, they've they properly cloudified SQL Server here for multi tenants. Exactly, it's really neat. Yep, and even if you're let's say you're a SaaS provider and you have multiple pricing tiers, what we've seen is that you could basically reflect that in your um, elastic pools. So let's say we have bronze 
silver and gold customers. We right. create a pool for a customer. And if you're a gold customer, we basically um, have a lot more compute and the limitation on the database level is a lot higher. So if you're suffering from issues, no worry, pay more, we'll give you more. And it's all right. done by Azure. You don't have to build it yourself. Nice. It's a yeah, built in. This is just, you just define different pools. So that, that yep. you know, this is, this is my question, Tom, that I open with, like, have things gotten better? This sounds better. Exactly. It certainly does. Yeah. And, and just an understanding of how to operate, uh, how to support SaaS inside of something like Azure. Like they clearly are making products to make our lives better. I, I'm excited about that. That's really cool. Yeah. They, they even nowadays have a, an elastic library where they basically do the partition mapping for you. You just define how many shards you have. Uh, and what your shot key is and the library determines where the shot is located for you. So you, you do have the ability to do some geo uh, options to keep databases closest to, close to your customers. Well, I think the library does not take uh, geos into account. You just add, let's say, 10 shots. Uh, you define a partition key and they just do, use the sharding strategy you want. Um, okay. But they do not do geo distribution as far as I remember. That's fair. Um, there's other storage mechanisms. How do they work in multi tenancy? Things like the, the blobs and the table store and stuff like that. Do they, do they have multi tenancy features as well? Um, I've not used them in these scenarios, but as far as I know, I don't think they have it out of the box. So you have so to write your own. So between Elastic Pools for Azure SQL and Cosmos DB, you feel covered as far as the needs of data storage when it comes to multi-tenancy. I think you can already get pretty far. Yeah, no, that it sounds it sounds like a great mix, right? If you prefer relational, that's fine. You know, what, one of the things I always liked about Cosmos DB was that I could just point a MongoDB endpoint at it and it worked. Mm -hmm. So if you're, exactly. you're gone down that path, there's not much to do. Yeah, so what I typically prefer is if we already know at fr front that it's a global scale application, you just use Cosmos. I mean, it's it's not cheap, but yeah, I was gonna say if you want to have that that geo scale, then I think it's cheaper to just buy to use Cosmos than building it yourself. I mean, yeah. they're a lot smarter than Are I. Are there cheaper solutions that have the same features? Not that I'm aware of, at least no. But you know, the, in our industry, we always say, yeah, I, I can also write this, you know, I write it. So then I know that it's good. Right. Yeah. But the, yeah, nobody's built a cheaper multi-tenancy or a, a cheaper multi-shard solution than Cosmos. No. Like, just be realistic. <laughs> Anybody who's actually going to, you know, you may think you can do it, but by the time you get to the end of it, you're wrong. Like, yeah. it's, it's you can still have the service. It's really running. hard. <laughs> now i think in terms of sharding it also depends on how complex you want to go because if you have one database per customer then azure key vault can be your shard map as well right um what we've been doing for some customers is okay we want to connect to the database for contoso then we just go to key vault get a secret with the name SQL dash Contoso, and that's the connection string for that chart. 
Right. So if you, if you would want to use uh, Azure Storage, for example, for a multi-tenant application, that's one way of building your own shard mapper on top. Mm. So again, the comment was right. It all depends on what you need to do. Yeah. And I, and I appreciate that there's the occasional argument for, for database per customer, but it does, you are taking on some management problems. Or, or do you feel like the tooling is good enough now that you could make that work? I think it's a good starting point, but if you're really a high scale service with a lot of customers onboarding, then at least you need to have an, uh, let's say, a, a tenant API, which automates all of this, or you need to have a sharding strategy across multiple databases. Well, that elastic pool seems like a, a pretty good way to go. Yeah. What about identity in the context of multi-tenancy? Like you mentioned using Key Vault to figure out what database to use, but what about the accounts as a whole? Is there, is there a good strategy for dealing with that? Um, in terms of identity, I don't have any customers who... We were just building APIs. So in terms of APIs, it's... We find it very simple to add API management in front mm -hmm. because API management allows you to give context for a given um, user uh, so that we can determine which tenant it is. So an example is if I'm a developer for Contoso and I create an API, I subscribe to a product and API management, I get an API key, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, if I if I do a request with that API key, API management knows that the caller is Tom Kerkhoven. So you could write a, a policy that um, adds an HTTP header, for example, x-tenant, and forwards that to the upstream API so that then your service knows, okay, um, for all the queries on the data level, I need to use tenant control so or use that as a shard key for example but if you're going in the whole azure ad world then i'm out of luck i have i'm not really up to date on that sure but but i mean three years ago we did a show with i think it was vishwas talking about api management and I, what i liked about it was also just you know when one particular customer is abusing your api you can cut them off without impacting everybody yep. else yeah. Which I think is pretty powerful in the multi-tenancy side. But it's interesting to think of that that's the limit of the identity you need to deal with. It's just like what key do you have to get access to the APIs? Yeah. And actually, Azure API management is very powerful. They give a lot of analytics, um, both on the API level, but also on the user level, operation level, geo level. Um, it's really nice. For example, what we had was we were onboarding a new customer and we had an API to get the status of a certain process. And basically they were constantly hitting it. Right. And uh, we were very easily able to determine who was calling that endpoint all the time. And then we just decided, hey, you need to back off or we're going to throttle you. Then we added throttling, and that literally took one minute with an API management policy. <laughs> they handled Just everything. a little knob, right? Click, <laughs> there you go. Exactly. You can't abuse us anymore. Exactly. And is it sort of an all-or-nothing thing if you throttle them, it just shuts them off, or do you limit them like one call every five minutes? Like, what, what granularity do you have on that throttle? I would need to check, but I think you have certain knobs to tweak how, how much they, they are being throttled. 
Neat. So, but it is granular. Like you're not just you're on or you're off. No, you. It's granular. That's that's yeah. I love that. Just like you're you're badly behaved. We're only gonna let you talk every five minutes. How about that? <laughs> yep. You can do it on on different levels, and yeah, it's really nice. If I'm not mistaken, I think Troy Hunt was using this for have I been pwned? Right. Yeah, because lots of people are reaming have I been pwned. Yep. So, yeah, <laughs> just it's interesting to think in terms of he's not even a multi-tenant app per se. It's just one context, but people are effectively calling his API when they're checking their stuff. So to be able mm-hmm. to limit that is smart. Mm. Yep. And just yeah. put a few clicks and you're good to go. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting to just think in those terms. I mean, a little out of the context of multi-tenancy, but, but in the context of how do I keep my system up and not get it buried? without just pay, spending more and more and more, which, I mean, that's something Troy certainly talked about, is you could just keep turning the knob up, but have I been pwned doesn't directly generate revenue. So, you know, he does want to put a limit on that. Yeah, and I think if we're building a multi-tenant service or just public service in general, that having an API gateway is always a good decision. Um, if it's not for your customers, it's for your own automation. Yeah, but that that's a real insight for me, Tom. This idea that I would put API management on stuff I'm calling. Yep. Well, it's not to say that you're calling, but let's say that you're using webhooks. What right. I'm seeing a lot is that people start spinning up functions and logic apps, etc., to handle those. But the issue with those is that they have a generated name and the URL. So if you start integrating with a function, everything's great today. Then tomorrow somebody comes by and accidentally deletes the function. The webhook will be broken because even if you recreate the same function app, it will still have a different URL. But if you're routing it through your API gateway, then the function app will still be working because you just changed the configuration and API management. But even if you're calling your own uh, services internally, which are managed by another team, you're basically decoupling those services from each other. So if the other team is doing breaking changes, they can mitigate your calls without even knowing it. Hey, Tom, how do you describe a webhook? What is a webhook? Uh-huh. A webhook, that's a tricky question. Certainly now that you have things like uh, cloud events and eventing, etc. Um, with webhooks, I'm more referring to machines pushing updates to your platform. Um, where a good example was we had a customer who subscribed to a third party service and they basically we said, Hey, for this flight, we want to get updates. And then for every flight, we would receive updates, uh, via REST. And we were routing them through API management. Now, so a, a webhook calls into an API. Yeah, exactly. Now, one of the tricky parts is that this service provider did not support any authentication mechanism. So basically, mm. if we wanted to integrate, we had to um, expose a publicly available endpoint. And that's not nice to have. So at no, the beginning, what we did unwise. was <laughs> certainly 
So at the beginning, what we did was um, our API was fully secured with mutual authentication, except for that one endpoint. So that was kind of a security flaw. So we mm -hmm. decided to just route all the webhooks through API management and um, have some check in there to see if it's valid. And if it's valid, we forwarded it to the upstream API, which was then fully secured and even the webhook endpoints. So basically, we limited the exposure to the gateway, which was then securing the effective API. Yeah, and it, yeah, that's the whole trick is I still want to secure it, even if it even if the thing calling me doesn't know how to pass credentials. Yes, exactly. And and we could do that because that service provider allowed us to provide context information when we were subscribing to updates. That's actually a very good concept because if you receive webhooks for a certain flight, how do you know how it integrates with your application? Meaning, how do you know which customer is impacted or wants to know about that information. So basically, we were able to add the order number in the registration. And when they sent the, the webhook, they were basically including those. So we could map it to the tenant and the order. Cool. Uh, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. Hey, what are you doing Monday, November 4th? How about Monday, November 25th? or Monday, December 16th. Well, I'll be teaching an online server-side Blazor workshop on all three of these days. In one day, we'll deep dive into Blazor and build an application with EF Core 3, reusable Blazor components, API controllers, ASP.NET Core identity, user and role management, file uploads, and SignalR for collaboration between clients. All this using the free version of Visual Studio 2019 Community Edition and no third-party tools, only open-source tools and what comes with .NET Core 3. Go to blazor.appvnext.com for details. Links to the other two workshops are listed there. I'll see you online. And we're back. This is .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. We're I'm here. And Tom Kirkhoff about uh, multi-tenancy. And I think we got down a little bit of a rabbit hole on the API side, but I think there's no SaaS app, app out there worth using that doesn't have a bunch of API surface area. Am, am I wrong there, Tom? Like, th that's kind of normal, right? Yeah, I fully agree. What about the whole white labeling effect, like being able to make an app look the way for the customer the way they want to? Do you dig into that sort of thing, changing code based on uh, a given customer account? Do you mean um, providing um, customer-specific logic? Um, I think what features you reveal, uh, putting the, the customer's logo into the app, like those kinds of things. So mm. the app looks the way the customer wants without a lot of work from you, right? It's a, You don't want to make custom versions of the software anymore. You want to make separate databases. Um, we did that to a certain degree where we... Um, showed their logo, their company name, et cetera, et cetera, um, mm -hmm. which was indeed exposed by an API, but we did not provide a fully customized UI. Um, and what we basically did was we stored all the information on Azure Blob Storage, and then we used a convention-based approach where the customer name was um, basically a blob container. 
which refer to the correct logos. As far as like feature switches and things, I mean, that's, that doesn't sound particularly difficult. I I probably do that in Key Vault as well, right? As to what features they're paying for, have access to. Yeah, so that's also an area that got a lot better, um, where feature toggles is becoming more and more um, accepted and easier. And now Azure is actually already has it kind of built in. So in the past, we had configuration files, which were just, uh, let's say, knobs to turn things on. But now you, and the issue there was that if you want to change something, you either have to um, perform a redeployment or have to change things manually. Right. And that's now easier with Azure Key Vault, but nowadays there's also a service called Azure App Configuration, which is basically feature flags as a service. Nice. Um, well, yeah, it's really nice. And it integrates with .NET Core uh, as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, again, you get to this. This is there's now tooling for this, but it, you still have to write code to utilize this stuff properly. Like it doesn't just. Ah, uh, yes, yes, that's correct. And it's sometimes more of a trade-off as well because do you want to go across the network to know if a certain feature is on, mm-hmm. or do you just want to have a small feature flag in the configuration? But again, it also depends on how far do you want to go. Right. Do you want to have a general switch for all the customers? Do you want to have a switch for on a per-customer basis, or do you want to go percentage-based? Mm-hmm. And of course, I've always think of feature flags as a way of beta testing new features. Only some customers are on one server, things like that. But the idea in a multi-tenancy app of, you know, you've only paid for these features. The other ones are going to be turned off. Uh, so, you know, we'll turn, but you can pay for them. We'll turn them back on. Yeah. One lucky customer gets to test your app today. <laughs> or the lucky customer does not get to test. Well, you know, at Strange Loop, we had customers who always wanted the latest features because they were super keen on performance and they were willing to take some risk. And so they were literally in a pool that said, these are the guys who are willing to try the new stuff and they've got close, you know, monitoring. And so we would push the new bits to them first. They saw it as a competitive advantage, but it does take a certain kind of customer. Yes. You need to be open for that and embrace issues, basically. Yeah. Um, sometimes stuff breaks. And in this case, when we were talking about Strange Loop, we were breaking their websites. <laughs> <laughs> they had words with us when that happened. Lovely. Yeah, that, that's a, a good example of how deployment rings can help you. Um, because if you have a big set of customers, you do not want to deploy to all of them. And I think that's also what you did, but you could create rings where you first deploy a new version to a very small subset of your customers. Then you promote it to the, to the bigger group and then to the late adopters so that the blast radius of a bad version gets reduced. Yeah. Well, we tended to keep one code base, but stuff was turned on or turned off. And so the yeah. nice thing was when it went wrong, you just switched it off. You didn't have to do a reinstall or anything like that. So it was, yes. it was quick to revert. But I, I don't know how other people feel about this, but we, as soon as we tried to run multiple versions of code, life got horrible. Like you don't know what ver- you know, you're struggling with what version they're on, what the set of problems are, like all your documentation and tech support stuff gets harder. If there's only one copy of the code and you're just dealing with what features were turned on. Yep. And I, I think Azure DevOps is also 
a great example of how customers can opt in for features. And right. if they're not yeah. happy, they can just turn it back off. I mean, this does bring up a whole other conversation point about updating multi-tenant software. Mm-hmm. Now, th- th- that's also a, a somewhat misconception with multi-tenancy because there's different models for that. So yeah, if you go with the, the easiest one, you could have full isolation between tenants. So let's say that I have an API uh, which is storing data on the database. What you could do is um, basically provision a web app and a database for customers. So that's the simplest approach. There's full isolation. Um, if customer A breaks, B is not impacted because they're, well, if customer A is basically breaking the API because there's too much load, customer B is not um impacted and over there you could just have the deployment rings that i mentioned another approach was what we already discussed was that we just have one api multiple databases you shard the data across all of them now Mm -hmm. over there it's already trickier because mm, multi-tenancy and data is very hard Um, if you need to migrate your data what do you do if it goes goes sideways? Um, yeah. Certainly, if you want to update only a subset of your customers, I think that's a very hard thing. And then the third model is you have multiple stamps of the application, which are using a shared um, data layer as well. And that's a bit how Azure works. Every service is deployed in multiple stamps. You as a customer have no clue where your app is on what stamp, but they individually update on the stamp per stamp basis. So again, it depends on how, how far you want to go, how complex do you want to go and how much right. control do you need? Well, and you want to be able to do those rolling updates. So nobody's ever down that just the new bits appear. So you want those multiple instances. It's just a question of how many versions are up and live at the same time yeah preferably not too many yeah right but more than one i mean it's either one or it's more right yeah that's also where telemetry comes in Um, what we've seen is that providing telemetry is one thing but providing usable telemetry is a different one It's it's not nice to drink from a fire hose without knowing what's coming. This fire hose has rocks in it. You don't want the data lake <laughs> of telemetry to wait no. without some kind of shovel. <laughs> uh, and what we've seen is that context is very important. If you're providing telemetry, always include things like what's the version of the app, um, what's the what's the customer. Um, maybe more information that that makes sense to your application like if you're processing an order include the order id etc etc and correlation is key so if you have a an operational department and they're basically going through the logs to help the customer they should be able to correlate logs for a certain operation and or a transaction so that they can see what what was going on 
and what happened before the issue occurred. And that sounds like an obvious thing, but it's not obvious for everybody until it's too late. Yeah, it, it's tough, to, especially if you only got one customer with the problem, right? Or you got two customers with the problem and nobody else is seeing it. Like these, this can get really tricky to diagnose. Yeah, exactly. And, and what we found useful was if you're using APIs, always return the correlation ID for that operation API that was just called. Mm, right. So that if they have an issue, support always knows what the correlation ID was. They can go to application insights, just query for the correlation ID. Boom. That's what went on. Yeah, that makes sense. At least it gives you a chance to try and tra trace back. And I'm hoping you're not waiting until the customer complains about something that you're actually seeing things fail and getting automated reporting back right away before the customer yes. even said anything. Yes. But whether or not you figure out what to do about it, another question entirely. Now, a lot of developers don't really care about the ops side because, hey, the developers, right? Yeah, and I shipped. I'm good enough. <laughs> exactly. And I've also been there, but I've noticed that if you're in the operator seat, then you start to learn why you need to provide good telemetry. Yeah. Um, and back in the day, I was part of a team and uh, we were releasing good old BizTalk on-prem and we had the support over every week somebody else was, was the operator of the week. And that's how we learned that telemetry is important because if, if you do not provide good telemetry, then you're basically screwed. Mm -hmm. And over time, we started adopting ourselves so that we focus not only on the feature, but also do we provide enough insights on what's going on and what happened. And that's also why I try to force my teams a bit to, to do that. Um, to take ownership of that application and also the telemetry, even if it's boring and not code. Yeah, but there's no, I've never seen any technical person, uh, programmer working on uh, an outage who doesn't come back with, we just don't give them enough information. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, and th that's also part of the course. That's also why um, I try to stimulate the team to write root cause analysis even if right. it's not in production um, because if you write those it's also it also provides structure on analyzing issues and explaining to others what the issue was so that as a team you can improve the product right not just as an individual yeah i, I remember reading reading through it was actually irq that's how long ago we we're talking about irc oh man irc Sorry. Yeah, it was, IR, it was IRC logs of us diagnosing a problem on the product hmm. and, you know, spending three months doing the diagnosis, three day uh, hours doing the diagnosis for a five minute fix. But finding out the right thing to do was everything. And you could see that moment where it's like, oh, it's this. Well, then yes. it's this look here and here. And it's like, okay, well, then we should fix, push that. Okay, push that. All right, it's good. All right, we're great. Thanks. But it takes hours to get to that point. That's a great moment. Oh, yeah. But you have to get there. 
but that we could that we could have good enough instrumentation that it doesn't take that much diagnostics to get to that moment that that's really interesting like not not that easy to do and it is azure helping us with the diagnostic side or the or the the monitoring side to try and manage the firehose and still give you the key information like what what's better there um they improved a lot so for starters they made it obvious what the offering was so <laughs> It sounds like I'm thing. glad, but that seems like something you would do. <laughs> you, you're implying that at one point it wasn't obvious what the ob uh, what the offering was. Actually, no, it, it was not in my opinion because before Azure Monitor was what it is today, you had a lot of separate services like you had Application Insights, you had Log Analytics, or whatever it was called back in the day. Again, I can't remember. Right, and you had a lot of those smaller services. But there was no grouping around them. And today, Azure Monitor is that grouping. So if you want right. to see how your app is doing, you just go to Azure Monitor, and Azure Monitor will guide you through the process. If, it, if it's either alerts, logs, um, audit logs, whatever, but Azure Monitor nowadays is the starting point to get you started. And that's a good right. thing. To one place to enter, and then there's all those other tools still exist. They're just sitting under there as, a, oh, you're monitoring a .NET app. You want analytics, right? Like that kind of thing. Yes, exactly. That's cool. Yeah. It's, all of this stuff seems better, but none of this is necessarily easy. No. And you also get more usable metrics than before. Meaning that in the past, you just had the, the simple metrics if you want to look at let's say um, queue length, you had to go and get the metric for every queue. But nowadays you can just select queue length and they are multi-dimensional metrics. So that means that you can get the high level number, but you can also split them by queue. Right. Um, so you can basically create more advanced charts, alerts, etc., etc. It's really That's nice. awesome. Uh, mm -hmm. Anything else, Tom? What are we What are we missing about multi tenancy that we need to think about? It's not about multi tenancy in general, but um, the problem is that you need to embrace change in your um, services mm -hmm. um, because our industry is so rapidly moving, and we have new services rising all the time and going away that we basically need to embrace that we need to keep in mind that things go away and that everything has an end date and that's something we've been suffering from um for this one specific customer we were working on the project for one year and in one year we had to migrate off of certain services already and migrate to new things right. um, while they don't really bring any benefit and some examples are Azure Data Factory, which went from Azure Data Factory V1 to V2. Um, does anybody still know Azure Cloud Services? If you still know it, then you're still good to go, but there's no investment in it as far as I see. So should you still run it or not? Is it still safe or should we use newer technology? Yeah. Uh -huh. So 
and the, the good old ACS is, I think, one of the biggest pains um, where not Azure Container Services, but Access Control Service. I think everybody who knows the service now starts shivering. But it, sometimes it's so fundamental that you have to re-architect or look for alternatives, which might not be there. And Did, uh, haven't they retired Access Control Service? Like, isn't it over? Yes. They finally killed it, I think. It took more than one to two years, but <laughs> a lot of services were depending on it. Yeah, no kidding. You know, and it's all your early adopters too. Yeah. And and that's that's what's hard nowadays, in my opinion. But, um, but do you feel like this momentum's dying down that, that they've kind of got a model for how they want Azure going forward? And so if you embrace the new bits now, you're you're far less likely to get into an ACS situation. Um I think it's not calm and i'm not sure if, if it's getting worse or not i don't think so but i think the hardest part is becoming aware that certain services or features of services that you run are going away and that's one of the main reasons why i started the azure deprecation dashboard but uh, basically the deprecation announcements of Azure are somewhat spread across multiple locations. And this uh, small GitHub repository just groups all of them into one dashboard where you can check, okay, um, for example, this week I added Kubernetes versions of AKS that are being retired. Um, so we have to move away from that. Or Azure Scheduler is also deprecated. I don't know if it's already killed or not, but you need to move to logic apps. So yeah, you're basically constantly moving. And you've got a Twitter account that just keeps spitting out each thing that's being deprecated? Ah, uh, yes. It's called uh, Azure End of Life. <laughs> so over there you get some notifications and reminders if you're interested. That's cool. That's a good idea. Just a play a clearinghouse for what's been deprecated. Exactly. Hey, uh, Tom, thanks for uh, spending this time with us. I was asking you questions the whole time. You just couldn't hear me because my mobile data button was off. So I <laughs> apologize for that. Uh, Richard was much more interesting anyway than I could have been. So. But I'd like to thank you. It's I've, I learned a lot. Thank you for having me. And uh, see you at Ignite. I'll see you at Ignite, Ben. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a